Amen. Amen. How are we doing, church? Doing good? You look great. If you got your Bibles, and I hope you do, grab them. We're going to be in Judges 4 and 5. We'll spend the majority of our time in Judges chapter 4. And I'd like to say happy Father's Day to all the dads. Happy Father's Day. Yeah, that's about all you get. Okay, so <laughs> welcome to fatherhood. So uh, today what we're going to be talking about is uh, Deborah. She is the only female judge amongst the judges. And um, some people have warned me that like, you sure you want to go down this road? Because we're going to talk about things like gender and roles of men and women. And let me just kind of lay this foundation out for you. At the Church of 1122, we believe in the authority of the Scripture that the truth does not change, that the truth of God's word does not change. Times change. What's popular changes. Uh, what's politically correct changes all the time. But God's word does not change. And we, like I'm a Bible guy. I believe it cover to cover. I think the whole thing's inspired by God. I think the whole thing's about Jesus. I even believe that the leather is genuine, okay? I am a Bible guy. And so the word of God is our authority. And God, because he is our, our creator and he's the author of life, he knows how things work best. And truth is found in the authority of the Word of God. And so while I am not, I'm like a mailman. I don't write the mail, I just deliver it. And so the goal by the time we're done here is I would like for everybody here, men and women, to be equally inspired and offended. And so if you're not inspired enough, come down, see me at the end and I'll tell you how great you look today. And if you're not offended enough, then come see me at the end and I'll just, uh, I don't insult you personally. But my job as a pastor is to comfort the afflicted and to afflict the comfortable. And so what we're talking about, listen, our culture needs to hear and, and understand what, how God designed things when it comes to gender. As smart as we think we are in 2016, we can't even figure out what bathroom to use, okay? It is, it is an issue. And the attack on gender, here, here's why it matters. The attack on gender is an attack on the character and nature of God. You see, that's why this is a big deal. That's why I'm not going to just say, well, you know what, just people can do whatever they want. Sure, people can do whatever they want. But, but, but when God came up with this idea of us, of people, the Bible says, God says, let us make humankind in our own image and likeness. That word image is a masculine word. That word likeness is a feminine word in Hebrew. And so then God says, so he made us male, masculine, and female, feminine. He created humankind. Which means this, that, that, that just the masculine half of the human species is not enough to fully image God to this world. And just the female half of the human species does not completely image God to this world. It takes us both together, complementing one another, not contradicting one another by God's design. And typically, when, when you talk about when you talk about genders and roles and those kind of things, there's typically one of two extremes that people take, even church people. The extreme that our world takes right now is this. We're just the same. We're just the same. There's a little plumbing difference, but other than the plumbing, everything is the same. That is a lie from the pit of hell. We are not the same. As the proud father of a little boy and a little girl, they are very, very different. Uh, a neurosurgeon came up to me after the nine o'clock service and said that even the, way, even the way the pathways in the brain work between men and women are different. We can get to the same, uh, the same point or the same solution, but we go in very different, very different ways. Probably because women will stop and ask for directions to get there, they get there quicker. All right, but we are, we are different. But the, the two extremes are same, everybody's just the same, that's a lie. But the other extreme is usually what the church has done that, that may be worse, and it really just boils down to chauvinism. 
that somehow it's taught or implied that men are somehow better or smarter or in first place and that women are uh, inferior to men. And, and here at this church, and I think all churches, must reject both of those understandings and understand biblically that God created us both equal and in his image, but not the same. And so when you get to Judges 4, what you're going to see here is you're going to see this woman, Deborah, leading like a boss. I mean, like a boss. And we can all learn a whole lot from her and the other, uh, the other individuals that are in this event. And while Deborah leads like a boss and is gifted in a specific way, she always does this while respecting God's order that he has established. That you don't, have to, you don't have to forfeit one to achieve the other. And one of my prayers for my daughter is that she would just be obedient to what God has called her to do. The Holy Spirit will never tell you one thing that the Word of God says that God does, isn't into. Because God is not a liar. And I think, based on the six years I've had with my little girl, I think she kind of has some spirit of Deborah in her, okay? And here's why. We were at, we were at Disney this past week on a, on a Disney trip. There is no such thing as a Disney vacation if your children are there, okay? Vacation is when you leave the kids at home. Trip is when everybody in the family goes. So it was a trip, all right? So I'm glad to be back at work so I can get some rest. But we were on a Disney trip. <clears throat> We're in Hollywood Studios, and we all line up to go on the Tower of Terror. We were there with multiple families, and everybody's in line for the Tower of Terror. By the time we get to the end of the line and about to get on the ride, all the boys in the group are out. Uh, most of the parents have quit, except for my little six-year-old, Reagan, says, Daddy, I ain't scared. All right, and so... I think she has the spirit of Deborah, and I, my, my hope and prayer for her is that she would just be the woman that God calls her to be. So what we're going to see here is, is Deborah being exactly that, obedient to what God's called her. So grab your Bibles, Judges chapter 4, beginning in verse 1. I'm going to read through the whole thing and then come back around and, and unpack it a little bit. It says this, <clears throat> And the people of Israel again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord after Ehud died. Remember, he was the left-handed guy we studied last week. And the Lord sold them into the hand of Jabin, king of Canaan, who reigned in Hazor. The commander of his army was Sisera. Underline Sisera, we're going to come back to that guy. Who lived in Herosheth, however you say that. I don't know how to say it. Now, some of you Pentecostals think we just went Pentecostal. We didn't. I just don't know how to say this word. That's all that was. Okay, verse 3. And then the people of Israel cried out to the Lord for help. For he had 900 chariots of iron. These would be like the panzer tanks of his day. With chariots of iron, he could just cut through foot soldiers, no problem. And so he had 900 of them. And he oppressed the people of Israel cruelly for 20 years. Now Deborah, Deborah's kind of our hero and the main character in this narrative. Now Deborah, a prophetess, the wife of Lapidoth, underline his name, we're going to come back, was judging Israel at that time. She used to sit under the palm of Deborah between Ramah and Bethel in the hill country of Ephraim, and the people of Israel came up to her for judgment. So she was like the smartest, wisest, and, and the ruler, and they would come to her with like very serious questions. Like, what should, should, do we shoot the gorilla or do we not shoot the gorilla? All right, is the dress gold and white or is it blue and black? Can you please help us? All right, she would address all the major concerns of Israel. Now, in the introduction of Deborah, we find three truths that are not in competition with, with one another, but are complementary in and of themselves. Number one is that Deborah has equal gifts of the Spirit as a believer. That Deborah has equal gifts of the Spirit as a believer. Secondly, that Deborah lives under authority. She is introduced as the wife of Lapidoth. 
which means she might be the boss of Israel, but when she gets home, Lapidoth is still the head of her household. And she gladly lives under that authority. None of the men anywhere in the Old Testament are ever introduced as, it won't, when we get to Barak, it won't say Barak, the, the husband of Michelle, just to pick a random name, all right? It won't go that way, all right? It, 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 basically, it's that she lives under authority as a wife. Here's something that's just true. All of us live under authority, all of us live under authority. And until you learn how to live under authority, God would never give you any more authority. I mean, Jesus himself lives under the authority of the Heavenly Father. That, that is the way the Trinity, the, the triune God works. There is mutual submission one to another. I am under authority, not only to Jesus, but right here in our own church. My title's the lead pastor, but I am under the authority of the board of elders, that I submit to a plurality of elders. And I set it up that way. The first thing I did when we knew we were gonna plant this church together as a team is I established a board of elders that I submit to. They could get together right now while I'm preaching the word of God and they could fire me and there's nothing I could do about it. And see, big, in my opinion, a big reason that Deborah could exercise authority is because she knew what it was like to live under authority. So she has equal gifts of the spirit as a believer. She lives under authority as a wife. And third, she has positional authority as a judge. Now I was taught that the reason that Deborah was a judge is because no men would step up to be, to be the judge. That is not in the text. Deborah as the ruler of Israel here, that is not plan B. That was God's call and commission on her life. It wasn't just, well, since plan A won't work, I guess we'll go with her. That is not the way it went at all. So here's, here's a part of what I would need you to know. Here at the Church of 1122, we believe that the Bible teaches that all spiritual gifts are available to every single person that puts their faith in Jesus Christ. There are not spiritual gifts that are just for men and spiritual gifts that are just for women. And we believe that we are all called to live under authority and that when God gives you positional authority, then you exercise it for the benefit of others. That's what she is doing here. The Deborah, by the way, Deborah's gonna be the only judge that does not fight herself, but she finds other people with that gift mix and compliments them, and then they together work to fight for the Lord. Verse six, so she, Deborah, so she sent and she summoned Barak. So underline his name, we're gonna come back to him. He's the commander of the army, the son of that guy, I don't know how to say that, all right, from Kadesh Naphtali, and said to him, has not the Lord, the God of Israel, commanded you, go, gather your men at Mount Tabor, taking 10,000 from the people of Naphtali and the people of Zebulon, and I will draw out Sisera, the general of Jabin's army, to meet you by the river Kishon, that part's important, with his chariots and his troops, and I will give him into your hand. See, Deborah is a leader, and she is doing what leaders do. And the primary job of a leader is when things are confusing and things are cloudy, leaders bring clarity and encouragement. And this is what Deborah is doing. So she's like, okay, Barak, you've got this. God has called you to this. So let's go out and let's fight. Verse 8, and Barak says to her, with the wimpiest voice that you can think of, right? If you'll go with me, I'll go. But if you will not go with me, I will not go. Which is Hebrew for, I'm scared. All right, that, that's it. It's like, oh, well, I'll go, but will you please hold my hand, Deborah? Because I'm scared. It's a big army, and they got, you know, chariots or whatever. So this guy, this guy's totally wimping out, totally wimping out. Now, you've got to understand this. This is an actual event that happened. And when 
at least in my imagination, this is the way it goes. In verse 9, you know that thing that can happen in the neck of a woman when she doesn't hear what she wants to hear and then she's going to respond? You, like, I can't do it because I'm not a woman, but it's kind of half Al and it kind of, you know what I'm talking about, this thing. So you got to imagine Deborah, the judge over Israel, with her neck just doing that little like, uh-uh. Right, here it goes, ready? And she said, I will surely go down with you. Nevertheless, and then I think nevertheless is the English translation of what we all know as, that's what I think. <laughs> Fellas, you know that little thing, right? <sighs> so here's what we all know. We know that's always bad. That, <sighs> that's always bad. Now, if, if the exhale happens like that, that sigh, that's like, uh-oh, uh-oh, I'm in trouble. Right. Now, that inhale thing they do, <gasps> That can mean, like, you're driving down in the car, and you hear a, and you're like, it could be anything from a train that's coming at us, and we're going to die, or I left my ID at home. You're not sure about what that means. But the, you know, uh-oh. And I think that's it. Nevertheless, I think she's super frustrated with him, as she should be. The road on which you are going will not lead to your glory, for the Lord will sell Sisera, that's the bad guy, into the hand of a woman. And then Deborah arose and went with Barak to Kadesh. Notice. Even though she is the judge of all of Israel, she did not try to take over Barak's job even when he abdicated responsibility. That she knew that she could be fully faithful to God and obedient to exercise all of the gifts that God had given her while still, while, while still um, respecting and understanding God's order. Verse 10, and Barak called out Zebulun and Naphtali to Kadesh and 10,000 men went up at his heels and Deborah went up with him. Verse 11, this seems like a totally random verse. Now Heber, and you got to admit, you know this guy is a redneck, right? I mean, is that not the countryest name you've ever heard in your whole life? Heber, what's your name? Heber. All right, that, come on, he's from Dillon. You got to know that's true, all right? Now Heber the Kenite had separated from the Kenites. Why? Because that's what rednecks do. They don't get along well. So he's like, look, I'm packing up the camper. I'm going to the other side of the KOA campground. This is not happening, all right? And so that's what they do. Now Heber the Kenite had separated from the Kenites. The descendants of Hobab, another redneck name for sure, the descendants of Hobab, the father-in-law of Moses, had pitched his tent as far away as the oak in Zanonah, which is near Kadesh. Seems totally random. It's going to make a lot of sense when we get to the end. Verse 12. When Sisera, remember he's the bad guy, when Sisera was told that Barak, the son of Abinoam, had gone to Mount Tabor, Sisera called out all his chariots, 900 chariots of iron, and all the men who were with him from the double H place to the river Kishon. And at this point, you're like, all right, you lose me. Come on, what are you talking about? All right, here's what happens, okay? So, Sisera's got these 900 chariots, and, and, and Deborah comes to Barak and says, now's our chance, let's go get him. And so when they go out to meet him at Mount Tabor, it was like a river basin. And, but it's the dry season, and so Sisera thinks, I can cut them off at the pass. Instead of going over the mountain, I can go through the river basin, and I'll cut them off. And we do not have to worry about it because it's the dry season, and it never, ever, 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 ever is going to rain in the dry season. And so he's taking his chariots of iron, which would be like tanks, down through the river. And what we find out in the next chapter, in chapter 5, we find out that God, at the most inopportune time for Sisera, that God sends the rain, which... I know rain around here, like, of course, it rains all the time. But here, to rain in the dry season will be like having a blizzard in Jacksonville. And because it rains, what happens is the iron chariots get bogged down. And what was Sisera's greatest asset now becomes his Achilles heel. And they are stuck in the mud, and they're like sitting ducks for the nation of Israel. That's what that's all about. Verse 14, and Deborah says to Barak, up. 
For this is the day in which the Lord has given Sisera into your hand. Does not the Lord go out before you? She is encouraging him. Come on, Barak, you got this big boy. And so Barak went down from Mount Tabor with 10,000 men following him. And the Lord routed Sisera and all his chariots and all his army before Barak by the edge of the sword. And Sisera got down out from his chariot and fled away on foot. Why? Because it's stuck in the mud. That's why they got all killed. Verse 16. And Barak pursued the chariots and the army and the army to that double H down. And all the army of Sisera fell by the edge of the sword. Not a man was left, verse 17. But Sisera fled away on foot to the tent of Jael, the wife of Heber the Kenite. Remember that from, chapter, from verse 11? So it seems like this totally random thing that this one little kind of country guy couldn't get along with his family, so he moves to the other side of town. God is using what seems to be this little minute detail to accomplish his plan for his own glory. Here's what this means for us. That God is sovereign over every aspect of our life. Some of you moved to Jacksonville and you think it's just random that your company moved you or you got this job. Could not be further from the truth. That God is orchestrating every, even the smallest details of your life for his own glory. So Sisera fled away on foot to the tent of Jael, the wife of Heber, Heber the Kenite. For there was peace between Jabin, the king of Hazor, and the house of Heber, the Kenite. You see, there's no way Sisera is going to run towards the, the army of Israel. So they run out, and of all the tents in the entire world, this is the one he picks. Verse 18. And Jael came out to meet Sisera and said to him, Turn aside, my lord, turn aside to me, do not be afraid. And so he turned aside to her into the tent, and she covered him with a rug, which would be more like a blanket, because he's muddy, and he's been running, and he's tired. And so she gives him a little afghan to cuddle up with, verse 19. And he said to her, please give me a little water to drink, for I am thirsty. And so she opened a skin of milk and gave him a drink and covered him up. You see, he says, I look here, big mighty warrior. Why don't you just have a little milk, right? Because, you know, milk makes you tired. She puts the afghan up by him. And I think she's singing, go to sleep, little baby. All right. And so, sure enough, he's kind of dozing off. And as he's dozing off, he says, and he said to her, stand at the opening of the tent. And if any man comes and asks you, is anyone here? Say no. And then he falls asleep. Verse 21. But Jael, the wife of Heber, took a tent peg. Now, this is important. Back then, um, most of the times when they would move around and go, you know, pick up the tent and move to the new place and set the tent up, then women would often set up the tent. You know why? Because men couldn't do it right. And so at some point, some man said, fine, you do it. And she said, I will do it. And she took it. And so the reason this is important is for a woman to have a tent peg and a hammer, it would be, it was just like a common household item. And Jael, is a, is, she's a housewife. That's what she is. It would be like saying that my grandma had a cast iron skillet. It's just what she has, okay? And so Jael, the wife of Heber, took a tent peg and took a hammer in her hand. Then she went softly to him, that's Sisera, and drove the peg into his temple until it went down into the ground while he was laying fast asleep from weariness. Look at this next verse. So he died. You think? <laughs> and then I think she walked out to the front of her tent and said to the whole community, nailed it. That's what I think happened, all right? Verse 22 and following, And behold, as Barak was pursuing Sisera, Jael went out to meet him and said to him, Come, and I will show you the man whom you were seeking. He's not going anywhere. He's nailed to the floor. That's what's going on here. So he went into her tent, and there lay Sisera dead with the tent peg in his temple. Verse 23, And so on that day, God subdued Jabin, the king of Canaan, before the people of Israel. And the hand of the people of Israel pressed harder and harder against Jabin, the king of Canaan, until they destroyed Jabin, king of Canaan. Here's the point. The church... And our world needs men and women, both men 
and women who are obedient to the call of God in their lives. The question I want to propose to you, is it time for you to get off the sidelines and get into the game? So the way I want to unpack this text is this. There are five main individuals. I hesitate to call them characters because this is not like a Star Wars story that somebody just made up. This is an actual historical event. But there are five main characters in this narrative that I think if we just kind of unpack who they are, it will address all of us. The first one, the main character of this narrative is Deborah. She's kind of the hero of the story. So to you, Deborah, to the women of the church of 1122, I have a few things to say to you. Number one, is that God has a calling on your life. God has a calling on your life. Yours is not to just simply sit on the sidelines and sit in the shadows of somebody else. Do you know what that calling is? If not, ask God to make it clear to you. Have you risen up to obey it like Deborah? You need to get into the fight. And what you need to do is be who God has called you to be. Not to be like anybody else because we have enough everybody else's. If God was done with you, then he would not have woken you up again today. He wants you to be the you that he has wired you and created you to be. Do you know what God's call is in your life? Secondly, you are a leader with spiritual authority. And around church, I know a lot of women who are waiting on the sidelines out of fear and insecurity. And so step into the call that God has on your life. Take spiritual responsibility. You see, Deborah here, she's, she's a leader of the highest caliber. She's the wisest and most courageous person in all of Israel. That we need the Church of 1122 to be a place with a whole lot of Deborahs. That, that we want this to be the kind of place where it is a movement for all people to discover and deepen a relationship with Jesus Christ. And the women of the Church of 1122, what has God called you to do and to lead and to step out, whether that's a ministry or a career or whatever it is, you be you. Don't try to be some caricature of what you've been taught you ought to be, but you, by the power of the Spirit of God, be who God has called you to be. And then thirdly, is that you can do all this while respecting God's order, as you see Deborah do, that she refused to take a position that God had assigned to someone else. So very clearly, in the Old Testament, there was only one position that was off limits to women, and it was priest. There were three there were three positions in Israel, prophet, priest, king. Prophet was open for everybody. King or leader, open for everybody. Priest, God decided and designed that that was for a man only. In the New Testament, there are two positions that are only for men. One, husband. Husband. This day and age, I feel like I have to say that. Husband is for a man. And the other is pastor, elder. Which means that women can and should teach and lead and exercise the gifts that God has given them in every, in every area that God has given them. Here at the Church of 1122, we have women leading at the highest levels, the highest levels of leadership. On our executive team, you'll see in a little while, our CFO is a woman, and without the, without the leadership demonstrated by the women of 1122, there would be no 1122. And we are called to complement, not contradict one another. Um, the way Tim Keller says it, Tim Keller is a pastor up in New York, smartest Christian alive right now. Here's what he says. He says, God forbids one kind of role in the church to women as he did in Israel. We must not jump from that to forbidding all teaching and tasks to women. We shouldn't assert all sorts of specific tasks are off limits to women. 
for example, working outside the home or teaching males over 12 years old or speaking from the front of the churches. He kind of sums it up this way. He says, it is better to say that everything a man who isn't an elder can do, a woman can and should also do. Here's what I want you to hear. See, some of you, based on the way you grew up, some of you are going, of course, this is what the Bible teaches, right? And then some of you are like, "Ah, where are we? Here's where we are. We're We're just reading from the truth of the word of God. Here's what I want you to hear. I want you, male or female, to be obedient to the Holy Spirit in your life And I am not your Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit will never tell you one thing that he wrote in his Bible as another thing. Because God is not a liar. But we want you, men and women, but specifically right now, women with the spirit of Deborah to rise up and be who God called you to be. And so, since, I don't know if you know this, I've never been a woman. Me talking to women about how to be women is kind of like a Catholic priest during marriage counseling. You know what I'm saying? You're like, I don't think you know what you're talking about, okay? But it's good theory, all right? It's good in theory. Same sort of thing coming from me. So what I did is I asked some of the smartest, wisest, most competent, influential leaders that I know that happen to be women, that in my opinion have this spirit of Deborah in them. I just asked them some questions about what it looks like to be obedient to God's call in their life, and I thought it'd be better if you heard from them. So take just a minute and watch this video. My name is Stacy Brown, and I am the CFO at the Church of 1122. I have been on staff since really well before the church launched. In fact, I was on staff at Beach Uh, before 1122 even became a service. I spent about 18 years in the corporate world, and in 2008, really 2007, 2008, uh, the Lord just did a real number on me and um, in a pretty dramatic way called me out of the corporate world and into full-time ministry. I'm Kristen McLaughlin, and I'm the CEO of Legacy Trust. Married to my husband, Rodney, we have five kids. Um, The oldest is 25, and the youngest is 12. My name is Marianne Jacobs and I'm the CEO of the Girl Scouts of Gateway Council. It's a 16-county geographic area that starts with Nassau County and heads south. I have been attending 1122 with my husband, Jeff, for the last three years. I feel like when we talk about um, women in leadership, and in particular strong women in leadership, we sort of talk about all the wrong things. We really want to focus in on the strong part, Um, As if to say, women who aren't in leadership roles or who don't achieve uh, career success are weak somehow. And I just would encourage people to not really just take strong out of it. The opposite of strong is weak and feeble. And I don't think because God gave me a leadership gift to some extent that, that that makes me strong and other women weak, right? We all are created the way God created us. So because I have some leadership skills, you know, my argument would be that that we can meet women of influence and that means significance, that means resilience, that means you know, sort of holding the course. And I think all women do that. I believe women have a more nurturing and caring responsibility in God's creation. Men are to love their wives as Christ loved the church, and that's a big responsibility. So God created men to be um, capable of having that responsibility. And the way that the the difference between the male role and the female role at home with Craig and I um, is that that we do genuinely complement one another. We don't contradict one another. And part of my role as his wife is his helper. Scripture is very clear that I'm to be his helpmate. 
He has a different responsibility. He'll answer to the Lord in a different way as it relates to his family and his marriage than I will. I think some of this whole male-female role, if you just look at how children interact with their mothers, it says all that you need to know about how the female role is different. When my kids get sick and when they get hurt, they want their mom. So there is a nurturing aspect of me as female that is is honestly just distinctly God-given. When I go home, I think of it as a position of influence. I, you know, I can influence the kids I'm in charge of. You know, Rodney and I, Rodney certainly respects the fact that I have an opinion and, and can influence the decisions that we make as a couple. So it's, it's not a change, I don't think. I think, you know, from a complementary standpoint, we, we use the gifts that we were created to, to use. Admittedly, I struggled for years when, after we had children on this whole notion of, well, biblical women stay home with kids. And, you know, the Lord and I went around and around for a long, long time over that. And He finally got me to see that, that it looks different for every woman. That I'm expected to steward the gifts He's given me. So I say all that to say that I think that the obedience to walk fully in how the Lord created me as a woman and all the other women who might hear this, um, that it's okay that it looks different than, than it looks for me. And that it's okay that, you know, my best friend is a stay-at-home mom. That's okay that hers is different. It doesn't make either one right or wrong. It's just um, how the Lord works it out in your own life. Amen. Amen. I can't, you know, they say it way better than me. That's why we made a video. Hey, so here's the thing that all three of those women have in common is they have incredibly supportive husbands that know how to platform their wives, and which leads to the second person I want to talk about. He gets one little mention in here, and he's kind of the silent hero of the whole thing, and his name is Lapidoth. Lapidoth. He's kind of the unsung hero. And every single husband in here, all of us need to be more like this guy. You see, what he did and what we're all called to do, it was actually commanded to Adam when he was given Eve as his wife, is he's supposed to subdue and cultivate. That part of our jobs as husbands is to create the kind of environment where our wives and our families flourish, where they could be the best version of who God created them to be. So my question to you is, husband, how are you doing at that? And I know what you think. I'm doing awesome. Maybe you should ask your wife. And then listen, you see, do you see your wife as somebody to just help you achieve all of your hopes and goals and dreams? Or do you see you as her biggest fan and her biggest servant to create the kind of environment where she can be everything that God has called her to be? Husbands, our, our number one job, our number one job is to serve our wives well. The measure of manhood can be seen on the countenance of your wife. How are you doing? Like, what are you doing in your life to create environments where she can grow in her relationship with the Lord, where she can grow in her relationship with others? Are you her biggest cheerleader? Can she look back one day and say, the smartest thing that I ever did, did was marry that man because I would not be this version of me if I had not married him. Every single one of us need to be like the second guy here, like Labados. Third, number three, it's a guy named Sisera. And Sisera is basically a dirt bag. It's basically what he is, okay? What Cicero does is he tries to flex his manhood with sex, status, and stuff. 
He flexes his strength to oppress others so he can do what he wants, when he wants, with whoever he wants. He looks at the world and he says, you are not the boss of me. And he looks at people and he says, all I want to do is take, take, take. I want to take for me. And when I'm done with you, I'm going to discard you. And then I'm going to go take from somebody else. It actually sounds like the American male. And we have some Ciceras at our church. And you got to stop it you got to repent and surrender your life to the Lordship of Jesus Christ. And God gave you a very high calling when he created you as a man. And he did not give you strength so that you could overpower and you could take. But he gave you strength so that you could provide and you could protect. You see, when you get to chapter 5, what chapter 5 is, is it's a song that, that uh, Deborah and Barack sing together, okay? So it's like Eminem and Rihanna or Kenny Rogers and Dolly Parton, whichever, John, you're, you're fun, whatever, okay? It's like that. It's a little duet. And so what, what, at one point, what she says, what Deborah sings is, out of the window she peered, the mother of Sisera wailed through the lattice. Why is his chariot so long in coming? Why tarry the hoofbeats of his chariots? In other words, She's saying that the mom's saying, God, what's taking him so long? He left a long time for more. He, he should be back by now. Now, she doesn't know she, he got a tent peg through the head. Uh, and then she answers, her wisest princess answers, indeed, she answers, have they not found and divided the spoil? In other words, he went to go get stuff for himself. The second thing she says is a womb or two for every man. That part of the reason he's not back is because he's got some people that he wants to rape and, and misuse and spoil of dyed materials for Cicero, that he's about stuff, about sex, and about status. And honestly, that, this is not just a culture out there somewhere, but, but there are people here right now, fellas, and you were called to a very high calling as a man. You were giving, given strength not for you, not so that others would serve you, so that you could be a servant. And you treat women like commodities, you use them up and use them up and use them up. And when you're done using them, you just want to sell them off and get a new set. People, when men act like men that God created us to be, then anytime real men, godly men come into an environment, everybody in the environment should feel safer. There should be a sense of supernatural peace that comes along with you because you're always leveraging your power and your influence, not for yourself, but for the benefit of others, especially the weaker. Is that what you're doing? Or do you just take what you want from who you want when you want and think that's what makes you a man? That does not make you a man. That makes you a boy. That's it. Maybe a boy that can shave, but that makes you a boy. Boys say, mine, and men serve. You know what Jesus did? The Bible says in John chapter 13, he says that all authority in heaven and earth had been put under his feet. And so he demonstrated his full extent of his love to his disciples. And he got up from the table the night he was betrayed. And he dressed himself as a servant and he washed his disciples' feet. That's what it means to be a man. That's what it means to be a man. And so there are a lot of people that need to repent from being like a Cicero, that God made you a man for a reason. He made you strong for a reason, not to exert your power to get what you want, but to provide and protect for human flourishing. The fourth character here is Barak. And quite honestly, Barak is just kind of spineless. He's got positional authority, but he wants to abdicate his responsibility and his leadership. And when I, you know, when you look at the condition of manhood right now, it makes you go, what happened? I mean, how did we go from John Wayne to the situation? How is that even a thing, all right? And if you don't know who that is, praise God that your mind has not been polluted. Ask your kid, all right? It's terrible. But the reality is the Achilles heel of man from the very beginning, from the very first man, has been abdicating his responsibility. 
You know, when sin entered this world, everybody likes to give Eve a hard time because, because she, was, she was tricked. And you know what the root of it was? The enemy comes to her and says this. Did God really say? Did God really say? You see, and a part of the reason we get into this mess is anytime we get away from the word of God and we put our opinion above the word of God, then the whole thing falls apart. Now, as men, what we like to think is, hey, you know what, that dumb old Eve, what is she doing? She's messing it up again. And we think like Adam's doing his quiet time or, you know, playing golf somewhere else or whatever, and that Eve made an apple pie and tricked him. That is not how it went. The Bible says that Adam was right there with her. In Hebrew, it literally means elbow to elbow. You know what Adam's problem was? Adam's problem was not that he did something wrong. His problem was he didn't do anything at all. That his abdication of leadership is the problem, and that may be one of the biggest problems and I'm talking about among Christian men, Bible, evangelical kind of men. And yet every single one of us, regardless of what you believe about the Bible and Jesus and all of that, every single one of us, deep down in our being, we know, we know that that is not how it is supposed to be. In 2012, two events happened um, pretty concurrent to one another that just put kind of manhood on display. One was there was a cruise ship called the Costa Concordia that off the coast of Italy, it shipwrecked and went down. And there are multiple reports of grown men pushing aside women and children so that the men could get on the lifeboats. And I don't care how strong a feminist you are. There's not one person that stood up and said, yeah, well, equal rights. They're all the same. No, the whole world gasped and went, what? That is not what men are supposed to do. That same year, in 2012, in Aurora, a man walks into a movie theater and kills 12 people. And there were three young men in their 20s. They weren't married. They were with their girlfriends watching a movie. And the whole world applauds them as heroes. They're known as the Aurora Three. And on CNN's website, and can we just be honest, CNN is not exactly the bastion of conservative Christianity, is it? All right. And on their website, they say, to call it chivalry would be a tremendous understatement. By all appearances, these men believe that a man has a responsibility to protect a woman, even to the point of death. They believe that there are things in life worth dying for. And the innocent woman sitting next to them was one. They believed, to put it simply, in a code of honor. They put the lives of the women before their own. An old-fashioned notion, to be sure, but certainly an honorable one. If you have any doubt, ask the survivors. Their instincts were to protect, not run away. And the whole world, no matter how liberal you are and politically correct you are, you looked at those three men as heroes, and you looked at the men pushing women and children out of the way to get the lifeboats as spineless. You see, God has called us, God has called us as men to stand up and to provide and protect. In every situation, when the heat's turned on, the boy goes down so the girl can go free. That's just how God designed it. And so men of the church of 1122, it is time for us to stand up and act like men, to play our role. And I'm telling you, you can find, you find the most conservative, Bible-believing Christian men, they love to quote some Bible verses about their authority and headship. They just don't want to take the responsibility and step up and do it. So there are, here's some ways that you can play your role, men. Number one, pray out loud for your wife and family. Pray out loud for your wife and family. And some of you are like, well, Pastor, I'm not really good at praying. Well, get good at it. By the way, the bar that your wife and family have for you is really stinking low right now if you haven't been praying for them. Here's how easy it is. You take them by the hand, say, hey, honey, how can I pray for you? And then you gotta listen. And she's gonna say stuff. And then you say, dear God, and you just say that same stuff. 
And then you say, amen. And when you get finished, she's going to be crying. And you're going to think, oh, what did I do wrong? Because every time you see tears, you're like, oh, no. All right, I get it. I totally understand. And nothing's wrong. You're doing it right. Way to go. And ladies, listen to me. Please don't screw this up. Because he's going to try to do it today. And don't be all like, don't get all noodle neck and be like, listen, the only reason you're doing this is because pastor said you ain't done it in 20 years. Now all of a sudden you're trying to hold somebody's hand. Shut up. Your answer is just when he prays, don't correct his grammar, don't correct his theology, don't time it, no matter how long or short. You just look at him and Hercules, Hercules. Oh, baby, this Hercules is so strong. And then you make out with him. That's what you do. It is Father's Day. He don't want to tie, I promise. All right, so, because men are like puppies. That doesn't even offend us to hear that. Men are like puppies. We repeat what is rewarded, okay? So that's what you do. Number two, men, play your role. Take responsibility for everything under your roof and in your family. Take responsibility for everything. The Bible says, husbands, love your wife as Christ loved the church. Guys that are shirking their responsibility like to talk about what's fair and what's not their fault. Fair and fault have nothing to do with the gospel response to you being a man. It's about responsibility that you take. See, Jesus took responsibility for our sins on the cross. It wasn't fair and it was not his fault. That's how we're supposed to love our wives. And everything that comes with it, all right? Everything in your household is your responsibility. And if you're a single man and you're like, well, what do I do? Because I don't have a family. You practice, 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 practice. Coach Leaves tell us all the time, you play like you practice. If you fumble in practice, you're going to fumble in the game. And so you cannot abdicate responsibility for two decades of your life and then put on a tux and show up with me one Saturday, say some words in the back of the church here and think all of a sudden you're going to know how to be responsible. So young men, practice. Practice by treating the girls at our church and every girl you come face to face with like she's a daughter of the Most High King because she is. Instead of taking, why don't you serve? Move out of the house, get off your mama's couch, sell the Xbox, get a job, get your life in order. Do you know before Adam was given Eve, he named all the animals. In other words, he got his world in order and then and only then did God say, okay, now, now you can have a wife. Like, if you were God, would you give you one of his daughters? What are you going to do with her? Take her to your mom's house? You know what I'm saying? You got to, you got to, you've got to take on responsibility. Take on responsibility and practice, practice, practice. Three, to play your role, men, stand up and, and act like men, you've got to lead the way at church. You got to lead the way at church. When Deborah and Barak sing in, in chapter five, they started out this way that the leaders took the lead in Israel that the people offered themselves willingly, bless the Lord. And then they talk about the king role and the prince role. In other words, when men lead and love well, like Jesus led and loved, then everyone flourishes, then everyone flourishes. And so, men, you've got to lead at church. Now, I gotta be honest, I got some statistics from, from some of our staff folks, and, and I can just tell you, 1122, we're not doing well. It's going to take more than deer heads in the bathroom to get the men to stand up and act like men. Because here's how it goes down here. Covenant membership here at the Church of 1122. What covenant membership is, it's not membership like at your country club where you get a towel with your name on it. Covenant membership here means you're laying down all of your rights. And you are taking responsibility for the mission, vision, and values of our church. So guess what? When it comes to covenant membership at 1122, 57% of the covenant members are women. 43% of the covenant members are men. What's the problem, fellas? When it comes to taking responsibility, you know what you've said? No, ladies, y'all go. Y'all go. 
We need more men stepping up and taking responsibility for what's happening here in our church. When it comes to disciple group leaders, disciple group leaders, 54% women, 46% men. And listen, women, way to go. I'm not saying anything negative about you. Way to go. Quite honestly, from the empty tomb until today, you've been doing more than your part in the church. Who was the first ones to show up to the empty tomb? The women. Who showed up second? The men. And what did they talk about? Taking the gospels to the nation? No. They got in an argument about who runs faster. Okay? They're dumb. <laughs> disciple group participation. 62% of our disciple group participation is women. Only 38% is men. And don't you tell me, well, I don't have time to go to Bible study. That could be the most damning thing about how important Jesus is in your life. If you do not have time to be discipled, then you are misusing the, the, the most precious commodity that God has given you. One day you will stand before him and he will say, what did you do with what I gave you? And you're going to say, I was more concerned about making more money or playing golf or whatever than I was being a disciple of you. How dare you? Step up and get into a disciple group, men. And I know some of you are like, oh, I feel so beat up. Well, happy Father's Day. All right, that's what I have for you. <laughs> Serve staff, 58% women, 42% men. Mission trips. Mission trips, 62% women, 38% men. It's the most dangerous thing we do, to take the gospel to other places. And you know what the men here say? No, y'all go. Y'all go ahead. Go ahead. Deborah, let me see if it works out. I'll only go if you go with me. We should repent. We should repent. In the song in chapter five, there's a part where it says, cursed morose. Morose was a group of people that hung out by the boats instead of getting in the fight. Men, you will be cursed if you don't get in the fight. Get off your blessed assurance and get into the game of what it means to stand up and act like a man. Did you know that if a child is the first to come to Jesus in their family, there is a 3.5% chance that the family comes to Christ. If the mom is the first in the family to meet Jesus, there is a 17% chance that the whole family comes to Christ. If the dad is the first to come to Jesus, there is a 93% chance that the family comes to Christ. You don't think men have a position to lead? We were at Disney this week when that alligator grabbed that two-year-old boy. We were there. Word, not like right there, but we were at the complex. And so word of that spread quickly all over the park. And every parent thought what every parent would think about that. Oh, no. Oh, no. Oh, no. Oh, no. And then, and then the news that quickly followed that is that the dad that was standing there jumped into the water and tried to grab his son from the mouth of the alligator, and mom was right behind. And what did every parent think? Of course they did. Of course, of course, I would go in no matter what. Something grabbed onto my baby, I would do whatever it took, even if it killed me, to get to them, to get to them. And here's the truth. You and I have a spiritual enemy that is trying to kill, steal, and destroy your children, but you're too interested in whatever your hobby is, or you can't get your lazy butt off the couch, just sitting there drinking a beer, watching the open, and your kids, you know what they want? They want you. More than they want any more junk you can buy them, they want you to get off the couch and get in the game and step up and be the hero that God has called you to be. God says of himself in the Bible, I am a warrior and warrior is my name. 
And men, you were created in the image of God and you are a warrior and a warrior is your name if you'll step up and get into the fight and fight for your family and fight for your children and fight for this church and fight for your brothers and sisters that are a part of this church. You have what it takes because Jesus lives in you and he has given you everything you need to accomplish everything that he has called you to do. You've got to reject what this culture says it means to be a man and it's time for us to step up and act like men. The fifth person here is Jael. Man, how good is God when he unpacks these events in chapter four? You see, kind of the, kind of the, the, the star of the show is Deborah, right? She's a, she's a boss. She's in charge. She's running all of Israel. But who does God use to accomplish his will and his purpose? A stay-at-home mom, a housewife. You see, and I'll bet if two weeks before this you were to ask Jael, hey, what is God's calling and plan and purpose in your life? She would probably say, well, I'm just a, I'm just a stay-at-home mom. Listen, ladies, you are not just to anything. You're just, you're just a daughter of the Most High King. And I, if, if your family, if y'all have decided that God's call in your life is for you to stay home and be focused on home right now, I'm, I could not applaud you more. Way to go. And here's what I've learned in knowing some women here at the Church of 1122. It's kind of like wherever you are in your life, you feel guilty about being there and you think maybe you're supposed to be on the other side. I think it's most clearly represented in like your hair, right? So if you've got straight hair, you really want curly hair. And if you've got curly hair, you really want straight. So you spend all your time trying to be on this. Just enjoy who you are, all right? And so let me just tell you, the, the goal here is to be obedient, to be obedient. I mean, some of the brightest, wisest, best leaders I know, God has called them to be home. Praise God. Whatever you do, just don't try to be a caricature of somebody else. God needs you to be obedient to what he has called you to. And I bet if you went to Jael and said, hey, listen, housewife, God's got a purpose and a plan for you to, to free all of Israel. She would probably think, you know what? I don't, I don't have that kind of influence. I'm just a housewife. I don't have that kind of ability. God does not need our ability. He needs our availability. And so you just be true and obedient to what God has called you to do. Don't ever sell yourself short. You have no idea how God is gonna use you in incredible ways. There would not be the Church of 1122 without my wife being able to focus on me and our family and what God has called her to do. In, in chapter 5, when Deborah and Barak are singing this song, here's what they say about Jael, this, the, the housewife with the tent peg. She says, most blessed of women be Jael. Most blessed of women. Now, all you Catholics were like, oh, most blessed of women. I've heard that before. There's only one other place in all of the scriptures where that phrase is used. And it's used to describe Mary, the mother of Jesus. Now, you want to talk about an unlikely hero. God looks out over all of creation. And at just the right time, he decides, here is an obedient teenage peasant stay-at-home mom. And I'm going to use her for the incarnation, the, the greatest moment in human history when God became a man. And you know what Mary says? Mary kind of feels like, I don't know if I have what it takes you see, an angel shows up to her in her bedroom and says, Mary, you are going to give birth to a son. She's like, well, there's one problem. I haven't graduated health class yet, but I'm a virgin. I don't have what it takes. And God says, no, no, no. No, with God, all things are possible. And her answer is this. And Mary says, behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. Our church and this culture, we need men and women to step up. 
We need men and women to say what Mary says. Behold, God, I am your servant. Let it be to me according to your word. My question is, what is God calling you to do? What is he calling you to do? Is he calling you to lead like Deborah? Is he, is he calling you to, to platform and support somebody else like Lapidoth? Is he calling you to repent of this kind of false manhood that this world is calling us into? Is he calling you to step up and, and grow a spine like Barak and move into the battle instead of run from it and abdicate it? Or is he calling you to be like Jael? Just saying, Lord, I, I may not have much, but what I have, I offer to you. I'll do whatever you call me to do. This church and our world, starting in this neighborhood, needs men and women, men and women, fueled by the gospel of Jesus Christ under the authority of the word of God to be obedient to his call in our life. So here's how I want to end. I would like the women of 1122 to please stand up. Here at Bay Meadows and in the sanctuary, the women of 1122, I want you to please stand up. And men, we are going to pray for them. But if you're a single guy, you just keep your hands in your pockets because you were trying to sit strategically. I don't blame you at all, but keep your hands in your pockets. But if you were here with your wife, your mom, a family member, a really good friend, that it would be appropriate for you to reach out and touch them on the elbow or grab their hand. Men, we're going to pray for the women of the Church of 1122. Because here's the thing, fellas. These women that are standing here right now, in all of our locations, these women are growing up in a culture that is trying to kill, steal, and destroy everything that God has for them. Either selling them lies of, of insecurity or just sameness. And we've got to reject both of those. And men, we, we have to be responsible to create the kind of culture, to create the kind of environments where we love and we provide and we protect, not just for our wives, but for our sisters, for our sisters that we should be honoring one another. And ladies, that is our promise to you, that we want to be the kind of men that stand up and act like men and do for you what this world is trying to strip away from you. And so men, we're going to pray, and we're going to pray out loud. And if you grew up Southern Baptist, this is going to freak you out. You're going to think it's too Pentecostal. Well, get over yourself, okay? And if you're too Pentecostal, don't, don't, I'm going to pray loud. I've got the mic. You pray like you, it's inside, inside voice, okay? Don't get all crazy on me. Freak people out. But as I start praying, I want you to pray I want you to pray for the women standing around you. I mean, here in the worship center, there's two little girls right there, and I want to pray that we create the kind of environment where little girls like that can grow up to the kind of women, whether it's Deborah or Jael, it doesn't matter, to be obedient to what God's call in their life is. That, that the church would be a refuge, a refuge for you to be who God has called you to be. So I'm going to start praying, and then when you're praying out loud, you're praying out loud for the women that are standing around you. Let us pray. Our good and gracious Heavenly Father, God, we love you and we thank you that you are a good, good Father. And that, God, you knew exactly what you were doing when you decided to create us in your own image and likeness, male and female, you created us. And so, God, I pray by the power of the Holy Spirit that we would reject, we would reject the two lies of the extremes that come in superiority or sameness, God, but that we are equal, we are equal under you, God. We are equal, that we are to complement one another. And God, I pray, I pray for any Sisera in this place that God, you would bless him or break him whatever it takes to draw him unto you. God, I pray that this church, all throughout our city and maybe even throughout the entire world, God, that this would be a light shining in a crooked and a dark and a depraved generation. Not to point our finger at other people and say you're not doing this right, God, but we would put on demonstration what it looks like to, to image you, the most high God. And we would be full of grace and full of truth. 
And Lord, I pray that when people see the way we treat one another, the way we treat one another, God, that they would give you praise in heaven. God, I pray for the women of the church of 1122. Lord, I pray for provision and protection. God, I pray that they would see through the enemy's lies and they would see the truth of who you have called them to be. And God, as men, Lord, we repent. We repent of our selfishness and our ego and our pride. And God, would you make us more like Jesus? Would you make us servants? And we pray this all in the good, strong name of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. Now, men, would you please stand up? And we are going to respond. Some of you men, you can do it right now. You could, you could begin to stand in the gap like you were called to do. You could take your wife by the hand. You could bring her down here and start praying now. The good news is the music's so loud she can't hear you anyway, okay? So it can be terrible. It don't matter. Just come on. And we respond by bringing our first and our best, our tithes and our offerings to him because he first loved us by giving us his best in Jesus Christ. And every single time you bring an offering to God here in this place, when you put him before all things, it goes to create the kind of environments where we can be who God has called us to be. And then lastly, we're gonna join our voices together. And we are gonna sing the reality that he is a good, good father. That's just who he is and that we are loved by him. That's who we are. And if we believe those two things, it would change everything. Let us respond.